0: Sunday morning worship service—something that the Lord has given us the privilege and an opportunity to meet corporately, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ—and what a privilege we have, you know. And these, we—the days are approaching now, the holidays, and you know, they get a little hectic, and we get anxious and tense, and all these kind of things, you know, going on. This is more and more we need to rely upon the Lord during these difficult times, you know, as we. As we go through these days, and you know, support each other, and this, during this time, um, this morning, as we look at our bulletin this morning, our usual uh, announcements for our with our ministries, and the, and also one for uh, the Sunday night uh, youth ministries. It's called "The Supernatural: More Than a Myth." So, if you want to join them, it, it starts at 6 p.m. And also a note there on your bulletin for a Christmas party on December the 10th. This is from 6 to 8, a, 6 p.m. I mean, to, from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. Is there a sign-up sheet that we need to look at, or? Yes, there's one in the foyer. Okay, so there is a, a sign-up sheet there in the foyer for you, for you to sign up for the Christmas party. With that said, uh, would you open your Bibles to Jude chapter? Uh, Chapter, jeez, what am I saying? (laughs) Jude Jude, verses five through seven, and it's right before the book of Revelation. Beginning with verse five, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep the proper domain but left their own abode, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Solomon and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to those to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's pray this morning. Our Father God, we come to worship. We come to praise you. We come to lift up the name of Jesus, Father but it is through him, Father, that he gives us life and he helps us through our lives, Father. And he even helps us, Father, to do things, uh, to change, Father, in a way that you would want us to to do, Lord, and to serve you. And that You raise up people, Father, to serve you in many ways and fashions and vocations. And, Father, we just pray that um, as we close, as we um, get near you father you will reveal uh these ministries per se to those that are are serving you father and and loving you and father just praising you father for who you are because we know that you're a good good father and you provide to your children father in abundance in many many different ways you go before us you're after us and all around us father you are ever present and we thank you for that that we're not alone and that we can also not, not only that we're not alone, Father, but we can depend on one another as believers in Christ as support bases, Father. And even forming disciple groups, Father, to help us in the ministry, help us to ser- learn how to serve you, Father, in many different ways. And so, Father, this morning we just again lift up the name of Jesus. And, and for those that are not here with us, Father, we just um, pray that you'll bring them safely back to our fold, Father. Thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, and for all the things that you provide on a daily basis. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
1: Good morning. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? The great light dawns. Christ of Nazarene, He knew well what it would take to free us all from sin and grave. A perfect man would have See you. Well the last now
2: had a great Thanksgiving. We, we had a great Thanksgiving. I uh, hope you're not still comatose, right? I have to keep repeating to myself my holiday mantra. Feasting is biblical. Gluttony is not biblical, right? So I took a break from carnivore. We couldn't figure out how to make the green tomato and the apple and the pumpkin and the pecan pie carnivore. So I had to adjust. But I had a good one. I think I'm recovered from the coma anyway. I did have a little bit of one, but I hope that you guys enjoyed that time, uh, and we're going to continue on. Children, you guys can go to Children's Church uh, if it is, it is that time, if that's what you're doing today. Remember, parents, your kids are always welcome in big church. That's up to you, but we do have that available um, to you, uh, generally speaking. We have all classes three Sundays of the month, and on Communion Sunday, we keep the, the big kids in here It's kind of a, a transition into big church kind of exposure to it, right? We have years ago. I was on staff at a church, and I had an, a, another staff member approach me and asked me to start children's church for college and career grown-ups. I said no. That's not within my value system. If you're a grown-up, you can come to grown-up church, and uh, we, we don't need to extend adolescence by creating children's church for college students. Y'all didn't say amen. I know you said it on the inside. It's okay. Um, they're they're grown-ups, right? And We need to start treating them like grown-ups. Um, so we're trying to transition them that way. Uh, I do want to remind you. Oh, well, one thing. You may wonder, did Pastor Josh lose his ever-loving mind because there's no candles lit? Um, we have decorations for Christmas. We have decorations for Advent. But t- this is the one year out of like six or seven in a row where the Sunday after Thanksgiving is not the first Sunday of Advent. So... We're not lighting the candles yet, or we're going to run out of candles. So, this is not an Advent Sunday. Uh, coming up in January, I want to remind you, men, we haven't started advertising that, but January 6th, we are uh, having a men's breakfast uh, here. Uh, so, keep an eye out for that. It'll be on a Saturday morning, um, and uh, hope that you will make, uh, make that a priority. Uh, but let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you uh, for the privilege that it is to come and worship you uh, together. We thank you that we uh, are able to do this uh, in our country, for the freedoms that we have. Uh, Father, we, we know that our country, as tumultuous as it feels now, is not among the most in the world right now. We pray uh, for the church in those places. Um, For endurance perseverance uh, for comfort for wisdom Uh, and father we do pray for your covenant people israel uh, this morning as well Um, and pray uh, for successful righteous violence uh, to bring peace on their behalf and to their benefit in their land we pray those things unapologetically here Uh, we pray a blessing on your time our time in your word and pray that you would give us discernment and ears to hear what it has to say to us today. It's in your son's name, we pray. Amen. Uh, so we're we're continuing in Second Peter this morning. Um, we are going to take our our customary. Oh no, I got to find my old man's glasses in there, uh, just in case. Um, our customary Advent break uh, starting next Sunday, but today we're going to continue. Um, in Second Peter because it is important, right? We're, we're talking about growing in grace. There is never a time where growing in grace is a done deal. It's no, there's never a time for a believer uh, in which you stop growing in this life. You are not perfect. You're not done. At best, you are medium rare, right? Not well done yet. Well done is for uh, good and faithful servants, not stakes, we say in the in the meat world right amen all right there are some people that are still doing that I heard a new category for a steak by the way this is free someone called it a blue steak you know what a blue steak is rarer than rare I never heard that category there are people that might as well want it still mooing uh, but I'm not there yet I'll take pretty rare but blue is out out of out of the category. Uh, but some of us are still blue stakes in Jesus Christ, right? We're the real deal, we're real stakes. We ain't anywhere close to done. Uh, nowhere close to there. So we need to be growing in grace. This is something that is universal. And that's reflected in how Peter talks about his audience. Uh, remember, the di- contrast between First and Second Peter is primarily one of audience at the very beginning. He addresses specific believers in specific dispersed locations geographically in First Peter. Here, he simply addresses believers, those who have received a like faith such as ours. And so this is for everyone. Uh, and so we've talked about that. In order to grow in grace, we need to believe that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. That's a metonymy for everything, right? Everything that we need, we have it. God has supplied that to us. Therefore, he's given us an order in which we are then obligated to supply those things to our life situation uh, to the best of our ability. And we looked at that list. Uh, and the results of that are some benefits. One is that we, we know why we're here. We know what our vocation is when we follow the system, the program, right? And so that we're going through the list of things, applying it, and it's, it's cyclical, right it even starts with the cycle do your best learn more grow in knowledge and then do your best again consistently fervently with endurance important things Um, one of the benefits also is that we can understand the place well actually there isn't a place for novelty we can understand the dangers of novelty and in the teaching of scripture uh, as we're subjecting ourselves, we're discerning between what is a true message from Scripture and what is false. So the last time we, we talked about the nature of prophecy, Peter explicitly said no prophecy is given essentially by the will of man, the volition of man, but it comes from God. It's inspired, and there is a distinction to be made between true prophets and false prophets. He said, but you will have this problem because among Israel false prophets arose and among you false teachers will arise. And so we looked at one that may have been the most time you heard the term chucklehead in a sermon because that was the false prophets. Remember, there were 400 of them led by a man named Zedekiah He's dressed up in a little horn costume. And told King Ahab exactly what he wanted to hear all the time and King Ahab was not a wise king and so he wanted that. Fools flock together it seems Uh, but it cost the king his life because it is dangerous to heed false prophets. Peter seems to be warning us that the danger is similar to heed false teachers that the doctrines that they teach, the novelty that they teach, the things that they inspire people to do are dangerous, potentially deadly. And that's not something that we we consider. See, because when you're when you're an expository preacher of a dispensation in the dispensational camp and that so that's this narrow, then you're dispensational. You don't think that you're the new Israel that narrows the, the circle a little bit more and then you teach uh, free grace doctrine, and eternal security. that gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower, actually. And so when you say to somebody, watch out for that teacher, that one, and this is something that most people don't do. They don't say, watch out for that one. They say, watch out for this kind of teaching. You will hear me explain to you. You need to watch out for that guy, and here's his address. <laughs> Here's where you find him. Don't go there. Don't visit the house. Don't find him on the radio. Don't find him on YouTube. Stay away from him. And a lot of people will say, he's just jealous. No, I'm not. (laughs) I can guarantee you that I'm not jealous. Jealousy is not enough motivation to do this for a living. Can I just explain that? You can't persevere in pastoral ministry simply and biblical, any kind of pastoral ministry, eldership, anything, if you're doing that because you're motivated by jealousy to get more butts in the seats and more names on the roll and more money in the bank, it will fall flat on its face, and that's never been part of my motivation. Some people don't believe that. Some people also believe Zedekiah and the 400 chuckleheads. I can't do anything about that but it's dangerous. The reason we warn people about false teachers is the reason Peter did, because it's dangerous to follow their teaching. It's dangerous. It, For one thing, it can make you enemies in places where you have no business having enemies, and there's danger in making friends where you have no business making friends. Both can be dangerous. Both can be dangerous. You know, there there is a, a, a doctrine, right, that that's out there in the United States. It kind of insinuates that the United States, not just the church, but the United States is essentially now the covenant people. Well, you know who else says that? The Latter day Saints, the Mormons say that. And you just got into bed with them by saying that. So don't say that. It makes friends where you don't have any business making friends. That's one example. There are many. But y'all want to get to lunch sometime today, don't you? You got some leftovers, called in your name. A little bit of turkey, a little bit of gravy, some cranberry sauce, maybe some pie left. You want this to get not be all day, right? That could happen. That's dangerous. That's why we warn people. That's why Peter was warning people. But people sometimes wonder, when I tell them that, how... How can God have provided this much? How, is, how am I supposed to believe that that is sufficient? Because I don't feel sufficient. I don't feel. That's the wrong F word, by the way. <gasps> Feeling and faith is what I'm talking about. Y'all get your minds out of the gutter. That's the wrong. You, you need to change your F words out in your mind. Feelings need to be replaced by faith. Okay? Because none of us feel sufficient. Do you feel, feel sufficient all the time? No, that's part of the process. You're not supposed to feel sufficient. You're supposed to believe and have faith that this is true. But Peter doesn't just say that. He gives us some persuasion that these are the benefits. He gives us some examples. We talked about one. That was my example, my illustration of the dynamic. But Peter gives us some more here. Uh, He says in verse 4, giving the examples, right? He's explaining the process. God is going to hold them accountable. He's keeping account. Don't follow those. That's swift destruction. Don't follow the false teachers. But he says, here's some reasons why. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, not hell, that word is not Hades, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's the first example. They're tied together. They're actually two separate examples because Peter is trying to explain two principles and that is that God is not failing to judge unrighteousness and wickedness in the world simply because he doesn't do it on your timetable. You would like it done by Wednesday. Yeah? I think it was Robert Heinlein. Do you know Robert Heinlein? Science fiction author. said they wanted it good and they wanted it Wednesday. Take one or the other. Do you want it good or do you want it Wednesday? you want to wait for God's timing? and have the complete and total just and righteous judgment on unrighteousness? I do. But I have to remind myself that that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be done by Wednesday. So he has two illustrations. It's talking about a specific instance, and it's not talking about the angels in rebellion being cast out of the presence of God out of heaven. Very specific. Um, He's... Jude references what Ernie read earlier. Um, This is not talking about when Satan was ejected from his rank in the Lord's host, right? But Jude and Peter reference this thing, this instance, that they abandoned their abode, their proper abode. Um, And that connects it back, in my understanding, to Genesis 6, in which we're introduced to the Nephilim, right, the the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, went into them, and that produced what we know as the Nephilim, sometimes called Anakim, Rephaim, all the, the mighty men. Um, I am not one of them. Every time I go somewhere to like an orphanage or somewhere, Jacob can point to that. We, we've done this together. I'm always Goliath for some reason. I never get to be David but I'm not a giant, I'm just ridiculously large, especially in El Paso, but that's the idea, these giants, right, that was the production of that, and this is a particular punishment that is pronounced on them, it is not applied to the whole group of fallen angels, it's applied to the ones that did this, that, that had a sexual reproductive relationship with human females. Oddly enough, there were, they knew who the females were. Our society no longer does that, huh? Right? They didn't have to come down and say, what is a woman? They knew that these were the daughters of men. They did that, and it was a sin for them to do that. And their freedom of movement was taken away. They were bound in Tartarus. That was a very specific word, Tartarus. This is actually a, a participle, meaning... Um, that it what would be an example of this we don't say Kleenex something but that would be like it right for wiping your nose you might see that what would we say oh I know have you ever unfriended somebody when did that become a thing when did that become a verb two verbs we friend them and we unfriend them well friend them well, that was maybe an archaic verb but we unfriend them we used to call that something else but now because of social media we unfriend them. This was Tartarus. It meant to cast into a specific location in bondage. It is like a prison. We would say like Alcatraz. They were alcatrazed. If I alcatraz somebody, if I were to coin that term, would I be sending them to hell? No. I would be sending them to that little island. It's been, it is no longer a prison but it was a prison for a long time. That's the angels. Those are the angels that did that, are bound. Their progeny were destroyed in the flood. That's my understanding. The angels were imprisoned. They were reserved for judgment, but they have not yet experienced the judgment. They know what's coming. They were reserved for it, but they have been rendered ineffective in those individuals in doing that to humanity again. Now, we've talked about this in Sunday school to some degree at much more length than we're going to do this morning, Um, but I tell you that this happened multiple times in human history and could potentially happen again. Different conversation for a different day, but these individuals are bound, the ones that did that in Genesis 6, and it's connected to the record of Noah. Remember that Noah was saved from two things, right? When we tell the story to little children, and this is appropriate, I think, like if you're in children's church and you talk about Noah, you talk about how Noah was saved from the flood, from the water, right? Noah was saved from the flood. Yes, he was. You know what else he was saved from? The wickedness of his generation, He was saved from a world that deserved destruction and the entire annihilation of all but eight of the humans. He was saved from them also. So that's important to understand that this is temporal salvation. Yes, it's temporal deliverance, but it's from two different things, from the waters, but he was saved from the evil of his generation. Now, that's an illustration of something. Because Peter's readers needed to know something. They need to have confidence that, in fact, if they rely on God's gift, having given them everything that they need for life and godliness, is it going to work out? Because that's your question. If you're you're awake, if you have recovered from your pecan pie incident from a couple days ago. An incident is not a wrong word for that, is it? the way you confront the pie of Thanksgiving. Your question is, how do I know that I can do that? How did they know they could do that? How long was the process? Was it 120 years that Noah spent building an ark that no one had ever built using techniques nobody had ever used to prepare for an event nobody had ever seen, preaching a message that seemed like foolishness to everyone left on the planet? That's what it looked like. He had been given everything that he needed for life and godliness. You ever wondered, I'm a a woodworker. I'm not as good of a woodworker as my dad or my youngest brother, but I'm a pretty good woodworker. And I see Noah, and I'm like, how in the world, how in the world did he just build that thing? How did he do that? I'm confused. Like recently, uh, uh, a local microbrewery, I picked up some grain from them, gave me a whiskey barrel. Whiskey barrels are super cool. Have you ever seen them make a whiskey barrel? No glue. They have the joints perfectly cut, the lid perfectly cut. Traditionally then, they make a big fire and expand the steel hoop and force it down over the thing and it squeezes it all together and then they fill it with liquid, and as it swells, it seals. I don't even know how they do that. And I could make a living tomorrow as a woodworker, but that separate trade has me all sorts of confused. How do you do that without glue? Get yourself a plastic barrel like a normal human. But no, they still pack whiskey in these charred oak barrels, because that's the way it's done. The the barrel was empty, folks. I don't have a barrel of whiskey at my house. I buy my whiskey like a normal human in much smaller bottles. I have the barrel. How did he do that? Well, God provided that because that was his mandate to Noah. You will build this thing. Therefore, I will provide for you the skills, the dedication, the endurance, the knowledge to do it. How am I going to get all the animals in it? Don't worry. I got it. That's what Scripture says. He did not go out with a rope and a lasso and try to rope them dinosaurs and drag them into the ark. God gave him everything he needed, and he delivered him from both things from which he needed deliverance. He had everything he needed to preach, the righteousness that he was commanded to preach, to build what he was commanded to build. He understood with certainty the nature of his vocation in his life, but it was it had to have been discouraging. Yes? A hundred years? 120 years, the preacher of righteousness, total failure by our modern standards. Nobody but his own family in a Sunday school class, huh? <laughs> After hundred and something years, 120 years. Did it work? Yes, it did. God rescued the righteous. He kept the unrighteous for judgment. That's the conclusion. And in verse 9, that's where we're going. We're cheating a little by jumping ahead. The answer is yes. It was not an easy trajectory. It was not an easy path. It could have been discouraging. Understand, Noah's primary vocation lasted more than a century. And he was not a perfect man but he was righteous in his generation. He was holy and blameless, a lone preacher of righteousness. But that example demonstrates specifically God does know how to rescue the righteous, and he does it, even in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We have a a liability in that we often think of our own generation as the most wicked and the most perverse. It's wicked and perverse. I'll gauge you that. It is. Anyone want to argue? We'll have to take it outside. No, it's okay. We're wicked and perverse. Our generation, all of them are because they're all full of humans. Humans are wicked and perverse. But we don't have, we, we can't lay claim to being the most wicked and the most perverse. Actually, only one generation was... Struck down like this, wasn't it? But Noah was rescued. I don't think we can rival the depth of depravity. I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't go into all the details of the depravity of Noah's generation and the world that it was in. There are things that I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't tell us. I am thankful, for instance, that the Bible does not tell us or even try to tell us the depths and the breadth of the absolute glory of eternity because I think I would just find a recliner in comparison. It would be really hard to get up and get motivated, I think. What do you mean? What what am I doing here? Well, that's part of God's plan, part of God's testing, part of God's training, part of the discipleship that we have. We have to trust him that he's revealed what we need to know. Again, he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness and a full understanding of the depravity of Noah's generation and the glory of eternity is not necessary for us right now. He's given us what we need. What about the next one? And if he condemned, verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, By reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, judging the unrighteous, right? And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds... It gives us a little more information. Because sometimes you might think, Lot's kind of a dummy. Lot's kind of a dummy, isn't he? Why is he living in Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you know how many times Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned? It's a bunch. I didn't even count. They will be, it's a simile, a biblical simile throughout Scripture for something that is never going to exist again. See, hellfire and brimstone, like sometimes I get told, you ought to preach a little more hellfire and brimstone. Hellfire and brimstone is not preaching in Scripture. It is God's direct judgment on on a chunk of humanity from which they never arise again. Now you show me a biblical mandate to do that in Scripture, then maybe I'll preach like that. Most of the people who get a kick out of that really jack up the gospel, so I don't emulate that. But you kind of look at Lot and you're like, is he, is he a dummy or something? Is he stupid? But Peter says there's a reason that he stayed. There's a reason that he stayed. His soul was tormented by the wickedness around him. His suke, right? His righteous soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. I only know one character of a person who stays in a place like that. Somebody who is in ministry. (laughs) Maybe a pastor in our terms or a missionary. Somebody who was hoping righteously that some would repent. That's what Peter kind of tells us was going on. And it was why he was reluctant to leave. Remember that he was kind of reluctant at first and the, the messengers had to say, no, it's time, leave now. Why is Sodom and Gomorrah important? Well, see, if you look at Genesis 6, and you look at the way that, and you understand the way that I do, which I think is, is correct, okay, sometimes people tell me, you always sound like you think you're right. Yes, I do, because if I don't think I'm right, I don't say that thing. Is that okay? Like, I don't know why people are offended by that. That's like the, the Dwight Schrute kind of preaching, right? When I'm about to do something, I ask myself would a stupid person do that thing? And if the answer is yes, I do not do that thing. I might have gotten that a little wrong, but that's the general idea. I I try not to talk if I'm not confident about what I'm saying, or at least I, I do say, hey, I'm thinking about this. But if you take Genesis 6 that way, you might come up with an erroneous conclusion, which is that sin was, again, inserted into human experience by angelic lust. And that without that, Sin wouldn't really be an issue. Of course, you're ignoring some some information in Genesis at that point. You know that. But you could get that if all you read was the serpent in the garden. In Genesis 6, you've got the serpent lusting after God's likeness and sovereignty position, all that. And then you've got these angels lusting after the daughters of men. Sodom and Gomorrah says that that went both ways. That the humans were lusting after the angelic messengers. (laughs) They came into Sodom and Gomorrah. The evil went both ways. So you can't blame the angels for that problem, can you? You can go check me. I I invite you to check me. You can go check. It's there. I know we're, we're summarizing and synthesizing. The judgment on the humanity here is just and righteous. Wicked humans deserve it. And again, Sodom and Gomorrah becomes a refrain in Scripture for total destruction and annihilation. And so Lot reluctantly does leave, even though his soul had been tormented by the unrighteousness around him day by day with his family. And they obeyed. They had everything that they needed for life and godliness, and all of them embraced it save one, his wife. So does the Lord know how to rescue the righteous? Yes. He does know how to rescue the righteous. Does he know how to guard or keep the unrighteous for judgment? Yes. Did Lot have everything he needed for life and godliness? Yes. In his time, in his context, for everything that God asked of him, every ministry that he had given him to do. You know, you may argue with me about that, but understand, Lot was a wealthy man. Do you remember why he was no longer living with, uh, with Abraham? Because Abraham? Abraham. they were both so wealthy, they couldn't get all their stuff in the same place. Literally. They could not have their livestock coexist, their staff could not coexist. Literally, this is how this was. And they had to, it's like the reverse of a merger. <laughs> they had to get out, separate themselves from each other. He was a wealthy man. He could have gone anywhere and done anything. He could have built his own city. So Why would he stay in a place where his soul was tormented? Because he hoped that they would repent. But leaving his wife as a pillar of salt behind him may not have felt like much of a rescue. At least at the moment, in the time, the weight of the loss—and you might be able to feel this—you might be empathetic with the weight of the loss in the moment—overshadowed the, the the joy of the rescue. You might be there at some point in your life. I don't know what God is doing because all I feel right now is loss. I don't feel that he, he is delivering me as one of his righteous ones in this moment. But objectively, God rescued Lot as the righteous from among the unrighteous. He rescued righteous law and oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, this righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. If he can do that, and he does it, and he has done it, it's been revealed to us, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from testing. Testing. My NASB says temptation I don't, I don't see the illustrations that Peter provided as God rescuing them from temptation. The word is perosmos. It's used throughout uh, the New Testament as the testing for the sake of approval. But I, I'm not sure that what's happening with Noah in, in his lifetime was rescuing them from temptation of engaging in that same behavior that caused the wickedness of their generation. I don't think necessarily that I see that Lot was tempted to engage in the behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they were being tested for the sake of approval. I think that's best here. He knows how to rescue the ungodly from testing, And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He did do that. He knows how to do it. And whether we like to admit it or not, those situations were far more perverse in many ways than what we're dealing with today. Because they warranted the destruction at that level. their judgment is not asleep, right? Peter's already told us that. He knows how to do that. He will not test you without delivering you. He won't. He's still doing that. He's still doing that. The same way we need to believe that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And the same way that he has provided for us to be certain of our vocation in this life, we need to understand that he is always saving those who are righteous by faith from the testing in our lives. He's always doing that. And he always knows how to do it. Understand that we are not foolish enough or dumb enough to outdo God's discernment, wisdom, and knowledge in rescuing us from our testing. Isn't that comforting? Because I feel really stupid sometimes. Really foolish sometimes. Why didn't I see that coming? My stupidity and my foolishness cannot outstrip God's wisdom, sovereignty, and knowledge. Praise Jesus. He always knows how to rescue me, and he's always doing it. And we need to believe that. To understand it, to believe it, that those who are righteous by faith, and that is, that is the righteousness we're talking about. We really didn't stop and talk about that. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail with Lot, but was he, was his righteousness because he was perfect in his behavior? Nope, not even close. Not even close. Noah? Noah? Well, we don't know a lot about Noah until after the flood subsided, but no. Some people try to make an excuse for him being drunk as if he didn't know what he was doing. I'm not so sure we can do that. Um, But at the very least, we would know. Their perfection, it wasn't behavioral perfection. It was righteousness that came by faith, which is the only way humans can attain righteous standing before God. These were imperfect people who responded imperfectly but who had perfect righteousness before God by faith. And guys, we we do. We tend to think that we're living among the most perverse and wicked generation that's ever existed. We're not. We tend to think that we are uh, living in situations that are so complex that maybe we're we're outstripping God's ability to actually rescue us and we need to help him out a little. We don't. We need to believe that he's given us everything for life and godliness. Apply them wisely, according to our knowledge and the best of our ability, to be certain of our vocation, and to discern the character of the inspired word of God being taught by those who are gifted to do so. And have faith that he is delivering us through the testing that we experience in our lives. That's what Peter is telling us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, We give you thanks today for this truth, for this dynamic that you are good and seeking always and accomplishing the rescue of the righteous from their testing. Thank you for your goodness to us and your grace to us, the life that we have in your Son. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.
3: There's honey in the rock, water in the stars.